It seemed there was no longer anything a conservative government could do to cause it to be voted out of office. We were living in a one-party state. It is difficult to recall the shock with which we realized our alienation from the events that were taking place in front of us. Robinson's first reaction was one of spleen. There were, he said, no mitigating circumstances. The press, the voting system, the impropriety of Tory party funding, none of these could explain away the fact that the middle class in England had continued to vote Conservative because in their miserable hearts, they still believed that it was in their interest to do so. For London as a whole, there would now be no new elected metropolitan authority. The public transport system would degenerate into chaos as it was deregulated and privatized. There would be more road schemes. Hospitals would close. As the social security system was dismantled, there would be increased homelessness and crime, with the police more often carrying guns. Those words, of course, from Patrick Keeler's London, meditating on the return of the Tory government in 1992. An accurate prophecy of the next five years, as it turned out, but as the clip's frequent appearances on social media suggest, it's not just about back then. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM London. Yes, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. But is that the whole story? At the end of that clip... It is from one of my favourite films. Keeler's Robinson laments that London and the people who live in it will suffer from the incoming Tory government. But London doesn't just have things done to it. It has also been a crucible for socialist experiment, a hotbed for municipal radicals, and once played host to a city government so radical that Thatcher had to abolish it. And the history goes much deeper and much further back than that. Uh, In a moment of defeat for the left... Uh, that from London, which voted overwhelmingly and astonishingly red in the last two general elections, like many urban centres across the country, does still look like that state of shock and incomprehension that Keeler was talking about in 1992. Perhaps that radical history, which even Londoners now barely recognise, is something for us to draw on, something that might even give the left a strategy for its future. I'm Owen Hatherley. I am a writer. I am the culture editor of Tribune and... Um, I've just uh, edited one book on London and written another, and I suppose that's what we're talking about. Aside from his Stakhanovite work ethic, Owen is also the author of Red Metropolis, which is out now from Repeater Books, which traces the history of municipal socialism as practised by Labour and the London left. I mean, it's startling, I think, from from my perspective, you know, obviously as someone who grew up in London, uh, you know, and one who knows the history of the left in this country reasonably well, you know, it, it never occurs to me to think of, of the kind of political history of, of local government in kind of continuous terms, right? And that's partly because, you know, as I sh- I'm sure we'll get to, uh, there are these quite important, you know, break periods uh, in the story of the left in London. But perhaps, I mean, it also speaks to one of the problems that I think your book addresses, which is very much to do with the problem of London for the British left. You know, there's almost a sort of socialist vernacular about this that you know London is 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 shorthand for something that is at best uh, decadent and with a, a sort of slightly dangerous tendency to liberalism and having its head turned by power. Um, uh, you know, at worst, it's a sort of suppurating when um, which <laughs> infects an otherwise uh, naturally socialist country. Uh, and I do think, I mean, you know, I, it does seem to me odd that that 
that we think of London in, in these terms, you know, and that it's so easy to to fall into. Um, and I guess you know, I guess that runs through a lot of the account in the book, which you know is is obviously also concerned um, about the question of what we do after 2019. But so, do, do you have a do you have a sense of of where that sense that kind of almost folk sense of what London stands for on the British left comes from? If I was being bitchy, I think it comes from the fact that a lot of the London left are not from London. And I'm not. Um, And I think that there is a feeling of guilt for the towns you've abandoned. Um, Because people have come here because here's where the jobs are, because, you know, here you're much less likely to get your head kicked in for looking funny. Not that this is true of every city in the country, but it was certainly true of the city that I left when I moved here. you know that 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 I think because of these things, and also because of the simple fact, and this is a fact that in terms of infrastructure spending and so on, London really does leech off much of the rest of the country. Like that really is true. Um, you know, the level of transport funding, to use an obvious example, um, in London is off the scale compared to the rest of the country. Um, so you know, it, it, it does respond to an, a, an actual fact of the deinvestment in the rest of the country. But I think there's a particular kind of um, vehemence that comes from the fact that people have come from, um, you know, Barrow and Furness or Southampton or Chorley or, or, or you know, Brickhouse or, or wherever to name, to name a few, to name myself and a few of my comrades there, um, that, um, that there is this kind of feeling that, that everywhere has been betrayed by London, including by you, by moving to London. I think that's where this kind of neurotic position comes in, where people kind of fantasize about sort of going down to the rest of the country and bringing socialism to them. And to be honest, that's a fair description of a lot of canvases where people did come down from London and Manchester and Liverpool and Bristol to the rest of the country and were roundly told where to go. I mean, I, I suppose the the other aspect of this book being, you know, because I should say that the book is very much grappling with the question of what comes next for the left within and beyond the Labour Party after uh, the end of last year, which incidentally just, to, you know, it, it feels to me like I'm living in a permanent December 13th at the moment. <laughs> like it's, it's <laughs> really, I thought, I thought a year later it might be over. but Yeah, it's sort it's, of like Russian it? doll, isn't it? It's just like, <laughs> and we keep sort of doing it again and again to see if we can kind of make it end differently and it never works. <laughs> but I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting that various points in your account and your account of you know, the municipal left in London are to do both with the the tension between national and local. And we should say, like, one of the things that comes out of the account is actually the extent to which, you know, the powers of of local government of any kind have been diminished over the course of the past century or so. Um, but but there is also, I mean, so 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 obviously there's a a question about the tension between uh, you know, a, a left that is in London and therefore close to the center of power. Mm. Um which is, you know, inarguably the case, mm. whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think we'd both agree that's probably a bad thing. Um, but it's close to central power. You know, it, is there a danger of foregoing the national question and instead focusing on the local? Or are there instances of, of kind of recovery from defeat through the local and the municipal in the history of the London left? Yes. Um, and I think our opponents have always been very, very conscious of this. So the kind of first real example of this, I think, is is under Herbert Morrison and the second is under Ken Livingston. And their different fate is quite 
quite interesting. So after the kind of ignominious collapse of the fairly terrible Labour government of 1929-31, which basically collapses because um, the shadow cabinet vote against austerity and the leaders go off to form a national government of the Tories, um, the... Um, the London Labour Party, which is led by the transport minister and in that government, Herbert Morrison, um, explicitly treats London as a test bed, as a microcosm for government. The, a Labour government will be like this. And, and it's a spectacular success. Um, it's not entirely what the London left had hoped for beforehand, which we can maybe talk about later, but on its own terms... Um, it made it transformed London for 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 you know with effects that lasted for decades. The um, housing and health and public space in London became immeasurably better under Morrison's rule from 1934 to 1940, and then they stayed in power until the London County Council was abolished in 1965. Um, so, you know that, that just things like. To use an obvious example, because it's the thing the left are very sentimental over, very sentimental over the National Health Service. Um, everyone seems to think the National Health Service kind of sprung entirely out of South Wales and or from the head of Anoir and Bevan. And of course, um, London County Council under Morrison had uh, free at the point of use healthcare from 1934. Um, you know that that the NHS was was tested in the capital for some years before it was in in, in 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 national government. And the fact that that's not talked about intrigues me. Um, um, you know, just the, 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 the kind of, it kind of features a little bit in Finsbury Health Centre um, because then it's tied to the kind of wonderful personality of Bertolt Lebetkin. But Finsbury was one of about a dozen health centres like, like that. It just happened to be architecturally the most interesting. Mm. So... A lot of what happened after 1945 was doing what had been done in London on a national scale. And some of the problems with it come from that as well. Um, the nationalized companies that were set up by Herbert Morrison um, after 1945 were modeled completely on London Transport, which he had created in uh, 1933. Um, and that, the Act of Parliament was brought in um, when Labour were in power and was passed by the national government. Um, and these bodies were generally much, much less accountable than the left had hoped for before 1934. You know, they didn't have um, a great deal of workers' control. They had trade union members on the board, but they were you know, expected to kind of think in a sort of business-like way, whatever that means. Um, but they, and the, you know, that what then happened to British Rail and British Steel and coal and, and you know, electricity and so on was modelled on that. Um, and when the left took power in the Greater London Council, they got a much larger Greater London Council in 1981, um, Ken Livingstone and John McDonnell and the kind of team around them of, um, you know, of sort of the, the London New Left um, saw this in exactly the same way, that they would test out a kind of um, a government based on cooperatives, on local democracy, on sort of you know, it's a large quantity of sort of devolution to the very, very, very local level um, of anti-racism, of attacks on homophobia, imperialism in South Africa and Ireland and so forth. And that this would be the model for a Labour government that would take over when Thatcher was defeated. Now, um, needless to say, this didn't happen. And one reason why it didn't happen is that the Great London Council was abolished in 1986, which is, you know, roughly on the level of now abolishing the Welsh Assembly or the Scottish Parliament. And, I, and I, it was incredible that they got away with it. And it says a lot about 
Britain that they got away with it. Um, but that, you know, that, 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 that in both cases, there was this kind of like, we are going to show what, what we could do everywhere here. And the first time it worked, and the second time it had to be crushed, basically. I mean, this is, I think, especially interesting, you know, for, for me, because it's, you know, your example, for instance, of, of you know, over healthcare, for instance, uh, you know, that seems to me to speak to the fact that for a lot of people uh, on the left generally, you know, 1945 is year zero. Mm. Everything, everything before then is sort of like the mythic past uh, into which, uh, you know, we do not delve and which has very little relevance for today. And that seems to me to be untrue. Oh, I mean, if, if, you, if you want to learn, you know, I, I think historical analogies are always bad, but the last 15 years in Britain can be explained a lot more by the 20s and 30s than it can by any other time after any time after 1945 oh yeah absolutely I, I mean absolutely i mean i think i maybe one of the things to 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 talk a little bit about then um i don't want to dwell too long on it but like those early phases of the left in london the sort of you know proto labor organizations of which there were sort of several mm. um uh, as well as perhaps and perhaps this is one thing um for, for you to explain to to the audience because i think in a sense, it sets a pattern for what what the Labour Party thinks about what kind of politics it should do for the rest of its you know, existence is popularism. Yeah. Um, so perhaps you could tell us a little bit about um, Poplar and what went on there. So I think really this was one of the first of the many big battles for the soul of the Labour Party, really. Um, the London Labour Party is a thing you could join and be a member of. Dates really from about 1918. Like before that, you have this interesting chaos of different socialist organisations, um, ranging from the far left to the centre. Many of which are much closer to power than anyone now likes to likes to remember. Um, and then there's this kind of battle for what this what this party is actually going to be, and it's really between, to put it very bluntly, Herbert Morrison and George Lansbury. Um, both of whom come from quite a similar tradition, both of whom came from the far left. Uh, Morrison had been in the Social Democratic Federation, had been a conscientious objector in the, in the, in, in the First World War, um, you know, did market gardening in Letchworth, all the sort of stuff that, you know, that the road to Wigan Pier takes to piss out of. Um, and um, when London Labour, London Labour Party started to take control of councils, which they did in four South London boroughs and then the kind of East London borough of Poplar, there was this question of what you did with with the machine that you found there. Um, did you try and work the machine in an efficient way or did you break the machine and try and create something else? And Poplar was very committed to breaking the machine and doing something else. So they, you know, it was one of the poorest boroughs in London, one of the poorest boroughs in the country, very high in employment after the depression that followed the First World War. And one of the kind of things that, that, that the kind of borough structure, the boroughs were actually brought in by a Tory government in the 1890s in order to uh, curb the power of the London County Council. I think borough abolition is one of the more radical positions implied in the book that um, that no one's really picked up on. Um, I'm pro, I'm pro. <laughs> um, but the... Um, that each borough, whether it was Kensington or Fulham or you know uh, or, 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 or Poplar, had to pay the same rates to the London County Council, and for Poplar this was just absurd. It was like we we can't pay 
this you know we can't we can't do the program that we plan to do which is of public works and council housing and health centers and um and you know trying to do something about the the, the appalling state these people find find themselves in um while paying a load of money to the lcc um why shouldn't kensington pay more on us less um so a, a question for the, today as well <laughs> a question for today and um so after kind of um trying to convince the lcc to change the rules and failing they refuse to set the rate um and for that they are taken to court um minnie lansbury um who was uh, george lansbury's daughter-in-law and who's uh, immortalized by a a clock in bromley by boat um actually died in prison um of pneumonia so you know this is a, a, it was to call it a bitter struggle is just sort of a cliche that doesn't really do too justice to the scale of this thing. Um, but in the long run, they won. They won the they they, they won the argument, as they say. Um, but they won the argument in that the law was actually changed because of what they did. Um, so, but there was a great there was a, there, there was a real kind of fear on the part of Morrison that every London council would 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 follow suit. And he, in you know, the, the kind of politics which he's kind of best known for, was this kind of trying to make Labour electable. And there's this kind of constant paradox for what Labour left does that I really don't think should be should be downplayed, which is that what it what a radical left council does, and this includes Poplar in the twenties, Claycross in the seventies, you know, um, the GLC or Liverpool in the eighties, tends to be very very popular in the place where it's doing it. But it tends to be used by the tabloid press elsewhere to scare the hell out of everyone else. And it does that very successfully. Um, you know, the 80s is a great example of that. The GLC was hugely popular in London. Liverpool Council was hugely popular in Liverpool. But I think it's actually probably true to say a lot of people in, you know, Kettering or Kidderminster probably didn't vote Labour because of the scare stories they'd heard about those councils. I don't think that's actually untrue. And Morrison's kind of solution to that in a very, very authoritarian way was just to crush that movement. Um, and wasn't able to crush it absolutely. I mean, Lansbury even ends up being Labour leader for a few years. And it's the most obvious um, precursor for the one that we had until uh, earlier this year. Um, but the um, he ends up expelling a whole load of lab local Labour parties, Morrison, um, on the pretext that most of them were close to the Communist Party, which again is totally true. Um, the Labour Party in the 20s, when it was kind of in formation, was frequently very close to the Communist Party. Many of the popular councillors, including Minnie Lansbury, were mem also members of the Communist Party. There was a Communist MP in Battersea, um, Shapurji um, Saklavala, who was um, a Communist, who was a member of the Communist Party and was officially backed by Labour. Um, you had Bethnal Green Council at that point building a Lenin estate which is currently officially known as the Cambridge Heath Estate, but it will always be the Lenin Estate for me. Um, so, you know, that 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 this was actually based on fact. And the Labour Party's Morrison had to create it, had to purge those elements, had to purge anyone that was committed to direct action, and it had to purge anyone that was committed to working with the Communist Party. Um, and the kind of London Labour Party that, that, that then emerges mm. in the early 30s and does a lot of interesting things has had the Marxism <laughs> purged out of it. Mm -mm. I mean, it's it's also, I think, sort of startling, you know, to think of the way in which the, the, this anticipates the the 
the sort of hesitancy that attends the GLC later on when, you know, they worry about, you know, exactly how far they can take. You know, this is the source of kind of conflict between John, uh, John McDonnell and Ken Livingstone about how far um, they can take their budgetary measures, um, you know, what laws uh, it would be permissible to break, if any. Um, but I suppose, but the other side of it, and obviously it's a, a huge part of your book, and it's partly because it is, I think, the major engine of kind of political unrest in the capital today, and that's housing. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, it's striking to me that actually these these early Labour councils or these, these you know, early exercises in, in the Labour left um, do pay quite significant attention to housing. And, you know, I'm speaking to you from Bermondsey, where there is still the legacy um, of early uh, left wing, in in this case, kind of Quaker Labour MPs, uh, <laughs> MPs, uh, Labour Mayor, the the Salters, uh, both of whom were uh, active in Labour politics, and their their legacy is, you know, very much a kind of bread and roses legacy. Actually, it's you know not just um, somewhere to live, but 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 a kind of beautiful place to live as well. Um, it, you know, so they take this very seriously, and then it, it seems to me that that. The later incarnation here, so the GLC, this under under Livingston during the Thatcher period, there's much less coherency and much less concern around the housing question, and and this occupies like a, quite a lot of, of of your thinking in the book. Why is that the case? Um, I think the the very very simple answer is because it had been solved. <laughs> um, I know comrades on the ultra left will will tell you that you know that the, the housing crisis is you know eternal for the working class and you know there is always a housing crisis but this is bollocks um <laughs> you know there there are there are housing crises but you know some crises are more crisisy than others let's say mm-hmm. um and by um you know the 1980s the 90 years of municipal socialism in london have eliminated um, a lot of the problems of landlordism, of you know unsafe and insanitary housing, of rough sleeping, you know of overcrowding, these these still these still survive in pockets at that point, of course, but um, but vastly less than now, and vastly less than when they came to power in 1934. Um, you know the, the the difference cannot be gainsaid, um, and so. To be really, really blunt about it, I think they just forgot. I just don't think they knew what was what was possible um, because it had been eliminated. It's in the same way that you know TB had been eliminated. Mm. They didn't worry about like you know like building like mass council housing because it was already there, and they didn't think it would ever go away. Um, so it was just not their focus. And in fairness to them, it didn't need to be their focus. London was shrinking. Yeah, I think this, that's really interesting. Actually, the the, the population change, mm. and I think it's worth um, sort of getting into a bit. So, um, London now, I think, is either just under or just over nine million people, which is its historic high, and it was close to that in 1939. And by 1979, it had fallen to six million. So you have three times the population of Birmingham has left London in those decades. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the kind of early gentrification that people write about that, you know, that, you, that someone like Raphael Samuel wrote, writes about very interestingly in, in Spitalfields and so on. And, um, 
you know, that happens in places like Camden and Notting Hill in the 70s. That's happening in a, a, a backdrop of, like, of, of, of people, particularly the, the sort of skilled white working class, that in places like kind of Southwark, um, going off to live in new towns and going off to live in Kent en masse and being encouraged by London's local government to do it. You know, London was building housing elsewhere um, and building factories also elsewhere. Um, and generally, you know, a lot of people who, who, who were kind of sick of, of London for various reasons, some of them good reasons, some of them racist reasons, um, buggered off. Um, and I don't necessarily think that should be repeated in quite the same way. But in a situation where London currently seems to imagine that, you know, one day it will be a city of 20 million, I think it's, it's something that's worth looking at. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so this is all happening. And of course, one of the side effects of it is that there's just a ton of housing. And a lot of people from that generation think it's still like that. Uh, a recently a, a recently redundant um, Guardian journalist, I remember once kind of t- tweeting at me about like, oh, are there still estates hard to let? And I was like, you live in Hackney. <laughs> you know that like every single like corner of housing in this borough has like a waiting list like bigger than the population of most towns. How can you not know that? And they don't know that because the city that they came to, somewhere like Broadwater Farm, was hard to let. Broadwater Farm now has a waiting list of probably more people that live in Broadwater Farm wanting to live in Broadwater Farm. Um, And they just don't know. So that meant that they just simply faced a different problem. And in the 1980s, I think that's not not something I would reprimand them for retrospectively because it wasn't the problem they faced. The problem wasn't how do we build more housing and better housing? It's how do we democratize the housing we have? And they had answers for that, some of which were good, some of which I think were more questionable. The real problem, I think, is when they come back into power in 2000, but anyway. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I think we'll come on to the, the sort of miserable uh, GLA, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, it, it really, it's, it's, it is sort of an embarrassment, you know, that, that a city like London is governed in such a way, but there we go. It, it, it is a kind of like, you know, sort of waiting for someone to do the kind of uh, Chad GLC versus the Virgin GLA type graphic. It really is on that level. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm assuming some listener to this show will go away and make that meme. I would <laughs> very much do, like that. Do. Please, please at me in. Um, I I I guess it's funny listening to you talk about this because like this is very much like the story of at least one part of my family, which is you know I, I now live where my granddad had his first job as a docker hmm. as like unloading at the age of I think fourteen, unloading stuff from the the wharves that are sitting like right behind me as i as i'm talking and and they they did exactly that kind of um retreat from from the city it's it's a you know it's it's a story that feels very familiar to me and one, one of the one of the consequences of this kind of con, you know uh concertina like uh population growth right like out in out um is what you call accidental desegregation, right? So it's not like Paris. We don't have like a, a huge suburban ring um, of the poor or the the migrant or you know whatever. It's 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 cheap by jowl, and that's that is accidental. Mm. Just wonder how far you think it's sustainable. Looking at the the kind of housing crisis that we have now, because I saw under Cameron the the change to permitted development come in, right? So this is the thing that allows office blocks to be reclassified as uh things that are fit for human habitation and they sort of you know bung uh poor people in there um 
you know, these these are kind of the high rise slums that you see stories about every so often. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, you look at the sort of architectural division, uh, you know, the poor door stuff. Uh, so these are separate entrances for kind of council tenants and stuff like that. It seems to me that there is there is re- you know, London is an increasingly segregated city in that sense. Like there are these worlds that barely touch each other. Mm. What kind of effect does that have on its politics? Well, I mean, one of the you know one of the kind of chapter epigraphs I I I, I used for the book is from China Mieville's City in the City, um, you know, which is very much, which is literally about a sort of city where two completely different cities of different names and different languages occupy exactly the same physical space, and it takes quite a while when you're reading it to realise what's going on that he's not talking about two cities that these are the same. And that you unsee as you walk around what's happening in the other city that is also the city that you're in. Um, and to be honest, this isn't tended to be bitchy about China. Um, I thought it was a much better book on London than his book about London. Um, I thought absolutely that was that. That's what the experience of London is like. But in terms of you know the portals is such a, a, a fantastic sort of. Um, way of understanding that because you are literally dealing with the same space you are dealing with the same tower you know the same tower will have different entrances depending on like you know whether or not you've got the affordable housing which actually isn't affordable anyway um, or whether you've got the you know the the the, the super prime as Anna Minson calls it housing um so um it's it's a really difficult one because you are dealing with a sort of segregation of some sort, but it's still happening in the same space. People have, pre- have been predicting for years that places like kind of um, Labrook Grove or, or or Peckham or Hackney will be completely emptied of their poor, and it doesn't happen. Mm. It doesn't happen. They end up with a lot more rich people, um, which actually causes quite a lot of problems to places like Tower Hamlet knew them because they're able to get a lot less government funding because they're no longer on the deprivation list um they actually will have as much deprivation as they did before but they have much more rich people which skews the skews the averages and therefore they can't appeal to central government so actually you know, <laughs> due to the bizarre way these things are allocated it actually ends up uh, ends up causing them a lot of problems um so it's weird and that kind of accidental desegregation um I suppose it's a sort of, you know, it's a deliberately provocative term. And I think I, I do then talk about how in places like Broadwater Farm, that desegregation ceased to be um, accidental and became active. Right, under the, the efforts made by Bernie Grant. Under the efforts made by Bernie Grant. And um, I think it's worth not forgetting just because, you know, we're all supposed to um, consider him the worst person ever to have existed, that one of the councillors who was most involved in that was Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but the... Um, you know, that, that there you had a kind of active effort by, you know, residents of Broadwater Farm to de- desegregate it. And that happened to a lot of other estates as well in the 1980s. So you have this kind of side effect on the one hand, I think, you know, the Luftwaffe bombs a load of places. Um, the widespread municipal ownership that comes in after 1945 means that council housing gets built on those sites. Also, there's lots of slum clearance as well. Um, and then you get these places which then, I think, in this kind of accidental scattering then becomes, you know, places that are genuinely multicultural in the positive sense are created in the 70s and 80s and endure. And I think they endure a lot more than people give them credit for. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's right. I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I suppose we should talk about the GLC because as you know, in the book, like it, it has become something of a, 
uh, uh, partly in the absence, uh, you know, of there being <laughs> helpful or, or 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 sort of obvious foundational myth for the 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 young left in the Labour Party. Uh, it's become a bit of a foundational myth, uh, I, and I'm not opposed to foundational myths. I think they're very helpful. Um, but but it so it plays a role in the book. I think as as the home of the new left. You know, I guess it's also your account's very careful to bring out some of the the kind of incoherences and some of the sort of potentialities in that that big mix. Uh, 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 you know, which went into the GLC. Some of the stuff that that was in there that eventually you know went along the trajectory that that became Blairism. But there was there was a lot of kind of quite astonishing stuff in there. And uh, you know, I mean, you quote. Um, uh, an account from Hillary Wainwright, I think, of um, just what it was like, <laughs> uh, you know, in in that vast and labyrinthine building um, when the left really came to power. Just tell us a bit about what the GLC meant to people. Yeah, I mean, I think for people at the time, I think it was just this incredible opening, you know, that 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 um, that all of these kind of apparently. I mean, I would dispute this to some degree, but apparently sclerotic and kind of immovable bureaucracies of, of, of laborism, suddenly it all kind of explodes and you end up with, you know, <laughs> what seems to be this sort of gigantic kind of Notting Hill Carnival type situation happening at County Hall. Um, and I think, you know, that's obviously a simplification, but that's a lot of what was happening. Um, and that, a lot of that I think comes from just how, how imaginatively they used the places that they owned. You know, that, 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 that kind of lots of the start of the argument of the book is that people always talk about London centres as being, you know, Westminster on the one hand and the city on the other. And there's this comparative neglect of the, the centre that is built by the LCC and the GLC, which is roughly speaking, the stretch from County Hall, from Westminster Bridge to... Um, to Southwark Bridge, really, of um, which almost kind of goes consecutively. You know, County Hall, as the seat of London, London's government, is followed by the Royal Festival Hall, which is opened up as a twenty-four hour kind of public space by the, the, the GLC in nineteen eighty-one. Um, followed by you know the South Bank, um, followed by the National Theatre, followed by the Coin Street Housing Cooperative, which the GLC um, helps to bring into existence against a proposal by developers to kind of build a, uh, a an office complex there. And that whole stretch of river, that's that's the centre of this. That's the centre of, of municipal socialist London. It's right there. And I, I'm always sort of impressed, really, at the sort of spatial imagination of just like recognising that and then just turning it into a gigantic site for kind of festivals and, and uh, you know, frankly, propaganda. Um, and, um, and that's a lot of why, you know, by 1986, most Londoners absolutely did not want the GLC to be abolished. It's because fact that it had very very clearly made you know kind of shown people what what a municipal socialist government could do in the present day for them um so it's a wonderful moment and i think it is our kind of usable past and the people around are all still alive most um even if some of them have kind of gone into a sort of twilight of of you know booze and bigotry um most of them have not most of them have not um and the you know a lot of people like, like certainly the the, the the toms of new socialist have been very um, forthright in trying to go this is our usable this is our usable past let's look at it let's understand it 
Um, and which makes it very frustrating the way that people, you know, kind of make everything about, you know, a sort of much more kind of misty past of, um, you know, the kind of great men of, of, of trade unionism and so forth. And, uh, you know, like, you don't need to do that. You've got like John McDonnell right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have kind of Hillary Wainwright right there, that these people are all still are all still around and they created actually a thing which is enduringly successful. However, bits of it do feed into Blairism. It's no accident that the only campaign group member who's in Blair's cabinet um, is um, Tony Banks, who was the culture minister for the Great London Council. And his and the, lots of the GLC's ideas about culture, while they're, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of multiculturalism and they're to kind of nick a phrase that he probably wouldn't like me nicking in this context um, from, Paul, from Paul Gilroy, the conviviality of the GLC stuff. Um, you know, the, the, it went alongside a kind of distrust of high art, let's say. They didn't like the kind of stuff the, Hay- the Hayward Gallery did. There was a lot of tension between them and the Hayward Gallery doing kind of, you know, big shows of abstract art. Um, they they were not keen on that and they were going to sort them out. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, the Hayward Gallery ended up having a big party when the GLC was abolished, which I think is disgraceful. Jesus, I didn't know that. That's that's disgusting. It is. It is disgusting. It's in Hazel Atashru's wonderful PhD on the GLC, which I've drawn on quite a lot and I hope will be published as a book. Um, and... Um, and you know, in the end, that came back to bite them. Um, but the um, one of the reasons they did so is because I think they did kind of worry that um, you know they were going to have to stop doing shows on South Korean sculptors and were going to have to start you know having like Billy Bragg and you before. I mean, it's fair enough anxiety, which I think is fair enough. And that is that kind of idea of culture as this kind of accessible fun palace um, is very much one that Banks brought into New Labour. And in some ways, the more attractive things about New Labour of its kind of its initial embrace of multiculturalism and modern architecture and cities and and coffee and pizza, you know that 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 all comes straight from the GLC, and that's their legacy in it. Their legacy in it is you know is the is is the Blairite twinks, let's say, <laughs> um, which absolutely wouldn't have been anywhere near the Labour right in the nineteen eighties, who were enthusiastically homophobic. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, like I think striking and I, I guess it, it's now a matter of um really quite widespread belief on on it's just a matter of 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 you know article of faith i think on on the left within labor that the loony left were proved right over time yeah. um and i think i think that's actually very important to 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 hold on to especially at the moment but nonetheless they were they were you know they, they came up against Thatcher and she crushed them and she crushed them because what they were doing was successful yeah um and then we get under tony uh the gla which is worth us talking about because it is it is uh, you know if we were to think about a left municipalism within london that at least initially would be the vehicle for it and that's actually not a great thought to be honest so tell us about the gla yeah i mean i still think you know, before I say what I'm going to say about it, I think it can be used in some ways. I think it's worth people having a pop. But Livingston, you know, referred to a London mayor before he became London mayor as a bloody stupid idea. And I think he was proven right. And he's always, um, to his credit in this case, been very forthright about the enormous limitations it has. Um you know, it it doesn't build housing, it doesn't run schools, it doesn't, you know, it has, there's almost a kind of decline that's happened where, 
first of all, the GLC had significantly less powers than the, than the LCC, although you know it still had probably more powers than the current Scottish Parliament. Um, but um, and then the GLC, GLA had even less than that, so it's just kind of been watered down and watered down. But of course, you know we do have this thing, and for fourteen years we didn't have it, um, and it's kind of you know the, the three things it has official kind of power over in a kind of advisory way. So they're kind of an interesting study in contrasts, I think. So on transport, I think the record is superb. And this is a thing I want to kind of shout at Londoners because they don't know. Um, I'm just like, you know, just want to kind of make them all like get, go from one end of Birmingham to the other. Yeah, I have to confess, as an adult going to the rest of the country, it was a, <laughs> something of a rude awakening. <laughs> mm. Anyone that's ever complained to the, on, about the tube, it's like travel around Leeds and then come back to me. Um, so, um, which is, you know, and, and this, is, uh, this is a British problem, by the way, like the equivalent of Leeds or, or Birmingham in France or in Germany will have several tube lines, a few trams, you know, like it's just normal there. It's not normal here, which again goes back to the kind of the Rodnick question. Um, but the... Um, and so I think that record on transport has been very, very good. I think there's been attempts to roll it back in the last couple of years, but generally it restored London transport to the level of respect and efficiency and, and quality that it in some ways lost in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So I, I'm, I'm all for it. And they fought eventually successfully, although the route was very convoluted, against Gordon Brown's obsessive and bizarre attempts to privatise the tube. Um, which Livingston took him to court over. Everyone's decided that Gordon is wonderful now, so I think it's it's very important to remind people that the ruinously expensive and idiotic attempt he made to privatise the London Underground, um, eventually renationalised by Boris Johnson, by the way. Um, so the other two are much um, uh, 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 are much less impressive, and they are policing and they are um, housing and planning. So on policing, you literally end up having. Um, Ken Livingston, who in 1981, you know, literally refused an offer to an invite to the royal wedding to go to go to the Brixton riots. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no exaggeration. He later kind of played it down by saying that it was because of the fact that, like, you were told that you had to wear an incontinence pad because you weren't allowed to move, and he thought bollocks to mm. this. Um, but you know, that's that that's Ken being Ken. I think. I think actually, it's it, uh, you know, it was a political gesture. I will not go to the royal wedding. I will go to the front line. Um, and um, and you have the same man in the mid two thousands making excuses for the shooting of John Charles de Menezes. And one of the reasons he makes those excuses is I think he he genuinely believed at that point that that he was successfully kind of making the Met into a less racist organisation under and under Ian Blair. And one can argue the toss about that, but I don't think he needed to 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 humiliate himself and his supporters in the way that he did over that um the other one is on planning and housing and again some good things were done in in terms of parks and public spaces which livingston had always been very good on um but the um question of housing was almost completely ignored and in anna minton's book of interviews with livingston which came out before livingston disgraced himself um that that she actually challenges him quite a lot on this. And he just claims, it was all in my 2008 manifesto. So if I'd only been elected then, I would have sorted it out and we'd have built loads of council housing. And, you know, one can take that with a pinch of salt. But that was the the, the great failure. I mean, the the 
yeah, I mean, I, I think we should talk about housing in just a moment. I, I just want to say on transport, I mean, for, for people who are not Londoners, um, they, they may have missed this, but the, there's, there have been kind of consistent attacks in the past couple of years um, from central government on London transport, including, you know, the total gutting of, of uh, central state uh, grant funding. But now during the pandemic, these uh, uh, conditions which are being laid by central government, which include the abolition of concessionary fares, um, you know, the, these kind of attacks, which are really the sort of, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know, it, it, to me, it looks very much like, you know, a, a desperate attempt to find somewhere to think, okay, these people are going to blame the mayor for if, if London transport gets worse, how can we recover any kind of Tory uh, vote in London? Well, we'll, we'll try to, to make him uh, well, one will 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 go along with the suggestion that he's some sort of um, you know jihadi fundamentalist, which is you know, the 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 other side of this. But like also the policy side is just you know the, these concerted attacks on you know, something that is utterly fundamental to London, which is which is its public transport system. Yes, and I, I really couldn't understand just going back to that briefly why it is that the 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 kind of left leadership and Labour Party didn't bang on about London transport all the time. Because there was always this kind of like, well, what will a nationalised thing look like? It'll be like British Rail sandwiches. And it was just so easy to just go, no, it'll look like TfL. Yeah. It's there. <laughs> it exists. We should talk, I guess, like, you know, we've talked a bit about housing, but I mean, you know, the you, you make an argument that I think is tremendously interesting towards the latter part of the book, um, which is to do... With, well, so, I mean, one of the things you say is that the, the, the London left has never known how to deal with the consequences of the Big Bang and the creation of Canary Wharf. And I think that's true, right? The, 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 the sort of two, you know, the, these two foul centres. But you also say something that I think was, you know, was actually really you know, tremendously interesting to do with the kind of Faustian bargain that Labour councils try to strike when it comes to housing, you know, that somehow... They will be able to enter into the act of property speculation or some sort of deal with developers, which will allow them to miraculously somehow fund everything that they want to do. Yep. And it doesn't seem ever to have worked. So why is it such a persistent idea? I think, I, I think some of it, just very very bluntly, is is, is lack of experience. Um, I think, and again, that was another failure when the left was in power, is explaining councils to them, explaining local government, explaining how it works, explaining what offices are, explaining what they do, explaining who to trust and who not to trust, and that was not done. And so the kind of London, there's three councils really, I think, where where the left made major breakthroughs. Um, one of them obviously got a lot of fanfare in Haringey. In Haringey. The other two got a lot less fanfare, I think, um, Partly because soft left are a lot more involved and they don't do fanfare, um, which was um, in Southwark and in Newham, um, where very right wing um, leaders were were successfully overthrown a lot more politely in Southwark. <laughs> you know, Haringey's example, I think it got it's obviously got a lot of criticism for um, it, kind of going along with the, the, the pre existing plans for the Latin Village and Seven Sisters, which I think would be would be disastrous. I think they should absolutely not be doing it. I think that the HTV proposals that they were elected to to stop would have been vastly worse. Um, I think that people comparing them are not are not serious and not on the same level. But simply, you know, you should not have come into come into a situation like that and be played like developers played played by developers like that. And that's exactly what happened. 
And I, I hope that there's still time to roll back on a lot of it because it's it's not happened yet. Um, but the naivety of it, I think, there's a sort of analogy which um, someone in Camden Council has used. So a lot of councils probably, and this is a, this is on the kind of the, 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 the credit side of things, more council housing has been built in the last five years than at any point since the early 80s in London. A lot has been built and a lot of it is good as well. A lot of councils which have um, in various ways, you know, been pretty appalling, have built really good council housing in the last five years and more power to them. However, the methods by which they've done it is usually, I mean, we talked about this in uh, January or whenever it was, um, you know, is, is this, this thing that Camden Council called the North Sea Oil Strategy, which is that we, you know, we, we speculate on our land and then we make a ton of money and they build council housing. And it's just like, you know, like a GCSE student could work out the problem with this. It's just like, yeah, and then you successfully make the place less affordable, which means that there's more people on the waiting list, which means that there's you have to build even more council housing, which means you have to sell even more land to fund it. And then you don't have any land left, and then you can't build any council housing at all. And it's just like, you know, it's so stupid. Um, it's so bloody stupid. And Camden, and, sorry, and, and Croydon Council have literally just gone bankrupt partly from doing this. And the people crowing about Croydon's bankruptcy, by the way, are not our friends. They're the people that would absolutely, you know, crush any attempt at councils doing anything interesting ever again. But one of the reasons why Croydon has gone bankrupt is that it has played this game and it's got its fingers burned because you cannot play the market as socialists. This, this, I cannot, I, you know, I, I don't see why this is so hard to get through to people. Um, and I think probably the kind of North Sea analogy is quite useful in that you already have a pre-prepared slogan, which is keep it in the ground. Like, you know, do not speculate on this stuff. Do not sell your land. Like, And if that means that you can't do a big entrepreneurial state, that you can then write about how amazing you are in soundings. Like, you know, so what? Like, maybe that the best thing you can do is regulate your landlords, renovate the council housing you've already got, and just do your best to stop the rot. You know, that might be all. And that's probably better than you know, ending up kind of imploding by trying to be incredibly clever. I mean, the other thing that I think we should mention, I mean, it doesn't play an enormous role in the book, but it has, it played increasingly, I think, I think a significant role for me when thinking about the last few years uh, is Grenfell. Uh, and it just, it, you know, one of the reasons it plays such a significant role for me is that it feels to me that, that, we should have seen what was coming coming as it slipped out of the headlines uh and uh, i just you know i i think it's worth mentioning here you know perhaps how grenfell happened yes i mean we are i mean the fact that we're dealing here with something on the scale of of hillsborough and it's just been you know it, it's just permanently off the news compared with Utter triviality. Um, so I think, you know, very, very kind of condensed version of what happened is that a tower was built in the early 1970s in the aftermath of Ronan Point because Ronan Point collapsed, um, killing, I, I, if I recall correctly, five people. Um, there was a determination that any towers that were built hitherto would be um, in situ concrete. So that they would not have that kind of concertina effect if they if if they collapsed, they wouldn't be kind of house of cards like they would just, you know. So so in the case of Grenfell, you're dealing with you know something which 
to, to which, which would probably have survived a nuclear attack, basically. Um, and then you end up with, then you have the decent homes program and you have the private finance initiative. And there is, a, I think, a kind of, uh, on the one hand, you have this move, which actually in some ways is quite positive across the country to renovate and insulate council housing. And a lot of people who will remember London council housing, you know, in the late 1990s will notice the difference. A lot of, a lot of places are genuinely better kept now than they were then, um, partly owing to that new labor program. But like so many new labor programs, it was based on letting the market do more or less what it liked. So it coincided with a huge deregulation of the construction industry, going right down to the privatization of the building research center, which is the very thing designed to regulate these things. Um, so it meant that a huge amount of the, of the towers that were, that were clad to insulate them in the 2000s were clad with stuff that was simply not safe. And that cladding has had to be taken off hundreds, I think possibly by now thousands of buildings. Um, there is actually a government budget for taking them off council-owned buildings, but um, a lot of it is on the private housing of the period as well. And, you know, one of them was going to go on fire somewhere, and it happened to be the one in Kensington and Chelsea. And what that did was just took the lid off, I think, the what an affluent London borough is like, which is, you know, kind of on sort of institutionalized system of kind of throwing money at this fabulously wealthy. So Kensington and Chelsea, you know, sends a, a, a council tax rebate to its residents who are, have among them the richest people on earth um, every year. And at the same time, they were ruthlessly enforcing through a tenants management organization that they, that they fund but do not officially own. Um, through that tenants management organization, we're ruthlessly insisting on as cheap as possible cladding. Um, and that, you know, that, that, that this is, you know, this is, this is something as, 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 as grotesque as, as Hillsborough, and it should be regarded as such. And no one who was anywhere near it at any level should be anywhere near power ever again. Um, and I think, you know, there was a, 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 was a piece about it by a, a, a Scottish novelist, which was morally disgraceful, but made the, I think, quite salient point that this could have happened anywhere. It just happened to be in Kensington and Chelsea. And that's true. That's true. This could have happened in a Labour Council, but it didn't. And one side effect of that is that we did get to see this cross-section of London, let's say. And for me, I mean, I've talked, about, talked to your colleague about this um, a, a week ago, but um, you know, that the, the, one of the things that it did is there was that kind of period after the 2017 election where initially, ah, well, of course, Labour have done well because the metropolitan elite of places like Kensington have voted Labour. Um, you know, the real people elsewhere in the Midlands and the North didn't, uh, are voting less so. And actually, you know, the Labour vote um, rose pretty much everywhere, but they did lose some seats in, in, in those places. And then we saw who lived in Kensington. We saw who had voted for Emident Code. And it was those people in the in towers like that, in the states like that, in the north of that of, of that constituency, and there was maybe a week long period where they then st where they stopped talking about the metropolitan elite, and then they started doing so again, and it hasn't stopped. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was astonished by one story you relate, which is the the surprise um, uh, that that attended 
George Osborne, now in his role as editor of the Evening Standard, or then in his role as the editor, uh, editor of the Evening Standard, uh, a permanent feature of the London political landscape, uh, you know, press organ for the right, um, you know, amazed that people, you know, who were teachers lived in, uh, you know, ex-council, were renting ex-council flats or, or lived in, or, or indeed were even in council flats. It really, it just like, it just like, this is a guy who was... <laughs> I mean, you know, what do you? I mean, he lives around there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He lives around the corner. I mean, what, what do you say? Like, the, the, this really is the city in the city, isn't it? It's precise, precisely what it is, um, and that's what people don't understand: is that you can have a situation in which you know the 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 genuine elite that really do run the country and do run, you know, the government and the BBC and the, and, and and the city and so forth, really do live next door to people who live in housing that is literally lethally unsafe. Like that really is what London is, um, and, and and it's you know it's it's uh, some people seem to find this really hard to understand, um, which is a constant source of frustration. Maybe we should sort of wrap up on 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 this, um, which is to to do with the kind of prospects. So towards the end of the book, I mean, the book is I think has the latent question of what is to be done, you know, hanging throughout it which is obviously a question for all of us at the moment. And, you know, towards the end of the book, you, you sketch out some of the current weaknesses of the current incumbent, you know, you know in City Hall. Uh, Sadiq Khan, you know, on the one hand, genuine successes to some degree in, I don't know, instituting the low emission zone or, or bringing it back, in fact. Uh, you know, this stuff is, is very important. At the same time, building an enormously polluting and enormously destructive motorway tunnel in Silvertown. Um, you know, th- this is you know very much Khan's kind of politics. It doesn't surprise me very much. You know, I, I would say he's a disappointment, but then I didn't have any hope to be disappointed in him in the first place. Um, but it's interesting, of course, that he is now coming up against central government that rather laughably suggests his London plan is too radical. So this sets the stage, I suppose, for for, for your kind of sketch <clears throat> of what a municipal, a municipally oriented left might undertake, um, you know, right at, at the book's end, uh, you know, and, you know, the, the, it, it seems to me that there is something that along with the contracting powers of these bodies in London, uh, you know, we also get, you know, a, a, an increasing discomfort with conflict of any kind. Because one of the things you remark on is like, well, historically, a left-wing, you know, Labour administration would simply have instituted rent controls <laughs> and, and you know, or demanded the power to institute rent, rent controls or, or, or institute them. Um, you, you know, that, that, that sense of there being a conflict to be had and one that it is important to engage in is very, you know, it, it's, it's, it's still off stage in British political life. And I, I sort of, you know, to a degree understand it, but, but it is, you know, something that, that you know, that, that is a, a question in all of this. The second thing is the sense, I think, actually just the really fundamental sense that has been missing, I think, in, in you know, some parts of uh, the city, for, for a long time, which is that things can actually change um, or change for the better, rather. This city changes a lot. It, it, it does not always necessarily change for the better. So, so tell us, talk us a bit through that kind of optimistic sketch that, that ends the book or, or sort of attempt at an optimistic sketch that ends the book. 
Sure. I mean, a lot of that comes from that question of of change, actually, and that I think London does change all the time. And I think a lot of this is this is all purely anecdotal stuff that you know no no pollster or poll prof will will ever certify, and I, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, and it's based on trying to work out why it is that 2017 and 2019 were identical in London and so different in, let's say, you know, County Durham. Um, and one of the reasons for that, uh, in my view, is that in London you simply can believe that things change because they are in flux at all times. Um, and you can also see money. It's quite easy to be in Kidderminster and to be like, you know, uh, uh, there's no money, you know. We've maxed out the credit card nationally. We can't do this because where's the proof it exists? Where is the money? You can't see it. It's not there. Um, but in um, in London, you have you know this enormous quantity of capital sloshing through the city at all times. I remember. I, I think you'll you'll you'll, you'll you might have had this feeling as well. You remember at the end of um, last year that huge tower on um i think it's in bishopsgate that gigantic new tower next to the the trees great and the, and the gherkin while it was being constructed all of the lights of it were on at all times yes and you would just be in like places like lewisham and you could just see this gigantic kind of beacon of capital like five times the size of everything else just beaming at you at all times like a goad it was that kind of gigantic kind of obelisk of defeat really after the 12th it was just like you've lost fuck you just like <laughs> screaming that at us at all times and um at the same time as it being proof that we've lost i think it was also the reason why we won london and won it comprehensively, by the way. One of the things that Khan did that I think was particularly gross was, you know, be constantly kind of like, I hear the voice of Londoners about the Brexit referendum. And then when Londoners voted in almost as large numbers for Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister twice, um, he went to the Times and said, well, British people made the right choice for Boris Johnson. And I was like, well, the people who voted for you didn't make that choice, did they? Did they, Sadiq? I thought that was a really disgusting thing to say. And, and I think he should should have apologized for it to be honest um but um he um uh, you know that 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 i think has an effect as lot as well as the things that are more familiar such as the problems in housing in london and the youth of people in london and the insecure work in london and the fact that people work longer hours and the fact that there's more gig economy work here than everywhere else all of this stuff obviously explains why london has moved to the left but also there is that fact of like class war is in your face all the time I think a lot of people see the fact that London, um, that the the biggest quantity of support for Corbyn and Corbynism was in London and in the city of Manchester and in Bristol and in Liverpool, and you know, in in sort of big cities, is some sort of like letter that reached the wrong destination, that the class conflict letter should have gone to. Um, you know, the the imaginary red wall, but actually it went to London. And it was like, well, no, it went to where class conflict is by far the most intense. So of course it went to London. Of course it did. Um, because you can see class conflict every time you stick your head out your window here. Um, I, I don't think, it's <laughs> another thing where I'm kind of like, it's just not obvious. Um, but anyway, um, and... So I think because of this, there is actually the constituency in London for a radical mayoralty. I think there is a constituency here for trying something like what the GLC tried between 1981 and 1986. It's there. Like There's loads of people that want it. 
there's loads of people that would gladly participate in it and would go out to to fight for it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think a lot of the powers that London has are at least at least ameliorative, at the very least. You know, a lot of the things that are happening, the London mayor can stop things. The problem with the London mayoralty is it's, 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 it's been very bad at having a positive program on anything other than transport, but it's very good. At, uh, uh, it has the legal possibility to call in any development and say no. Khan could tomorrow say no to the Latin village proposals. Um, I mean, I, I from what I hear on the grapevine, that's not actually that unlikely. Um, you know, he could say no to Bishopsgate Goods Yard. He could stop, you know, the mad overdevelopment in Vauxhall. You know, the, the, all of these things could actually be, um, you know, that, that there are, uh, you know, even with Robert Jenrick trying his best to stop it, um, Sadiq Khan does actually have the power to stop these things. And they actually have been investing quite significantly in council housing. Um, and that could, I think, quite easily be stepped up. Um, I think one of the things that has to be, and this is this kind of get, makes you quite unpopular on the kind of on, on, on certain kind of parts of the sort of wonkish left, is growth has to stop in London. Um, that doesn't mean going back to the Abercrombie plan of the forties and London, you know, shrinking to six million people. Um, although I think it probably should shrink significantly, I think that would be a good thing. Um, but the the ideas that are in the current London plan that it will go to 10, 12 million people are asinine and will be hugely polluting and will mostly be in completely unaffordable housing. And we already know that the idea that you can then kind of hive off a bit of that and build social housing is simply not true. This doesn't happen. Livingston tried to do it. The boroughs are trying to do it. It doesn't work. Um, so although the kind of powers and the finances are far, far, far smaller than... That McDonnell had at his disposal in the mid '80s. I do think you can have a good fist of it, and I think you can also have a good fist at propaganda. And uh, you know, to, to use a sort of sentimental or kind of way of looking at it, you can go to the people. Um, and I think it's very telling that, that the municipal politician that has done that has actually been Andy Burnham. And I think that's partly because of different personalities. I think um, I think Burnham has become less of a bureaucrat with time, and Khan uh, has become more of one. Um, but I think also um, it's to do with the way that people talk up the North. You can see that as soon as Burnham came out, everyone had this, ah, the king in the North, you know, da, 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 da. it's back to the 80s, you know, had this kind of huge kind of wave of enthusiasm for it, which to be honest, I kind of thought, <clears throat> don't think we didn't see what happened in December. Like, you know, you don't get to, to, to pretend that, <laughs> you know, oh, well, Andy Burnham's made it all okay now. Like that was all totally fine. Like we saw it. Um, but you know, without wanting to be, um, sectarian or chauvinist about it, it was good. But I think because of that thing that people have of kind of like the London, the North is where socialism happens. Someone like Burnham, who comes from a new labor background, but it seems to be a basically a good egg was able to kind of go no, and was able to coalesce the boroughs, well, the boroughs, the, you know, they're not called boroughs in Manchester, but let, let's face it, they're boroughs. Um, you know, that we're, we're able to kind of come out and kind of go and say no including people like Richard Lees, who are like among the most right-wing Blairites on earth, you know, were able to kind of come out and go, no. And, and because of the fact that London has this kind of cringe imposed upon it, where we have to constantly apologize for ourselves and apologize for like the fact that we like it here and apologize, you know, to the red wall, um, that it's much more difficult for people to kind of go like London says no to, 
to the government, precisely because a lot of the rest of the country, and I think in a lot of the left and the centre left and lots of the rest of the country, has made the enormous error of, you know, of, of describing as what they're doing as being against London. You know, the Scottish Parliament doing, like, you know, the London government. It's like London votes exactly the same way you do. Um, you know, like like people talking about, you know, if you talk about Westminster, fine. Like this is a question of Westminster. But currently the London Borough of Redbridge isn't allowed to license its own landlords. You know, like a London borough isn't legally allowed by this government to find out who its landlords are. That That's London in power. You know, like this is like literally a London borough not even being able to find out this basic piece of information. Um, whereas, you know, and the fact that Westminster enforces this enormous power over the rest of the country means that people miss the fact that it also enforces it on, on for instance, the London borough of Redbridge. That's it for this week. London is red. Maybe that's something the left should be using. Red Metropolis is out now from Repeater Books, and I really recommend it if I can persuade any of our listeners to make that Virgin GLA versus the Chad GLC meme. Well, you know my Twitter. My thanks to Owen and my thanks to Chow Ravens at Navara Media for her stellar edit job, and as ever, to 65 Days of Static for letting me tarnish their music. Stay locked to Resonance 104.4 FM, one of the many, many things that makes London so special. This has been Navara FM. I will be back next week and I'll see you then. Bye-bye. This broadcast was brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.